Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to, I think, finish this up tonight. And then uh, if I, things go the way I think we are, I'm going to begin to teach uh, in here my series I've taught before on renewing the mind. Uh, everything that the Bible, everything God does for you has to somehow go through your mind. And the Bible says in Romans 12 that we are transformed, changed by the renewing of our mind. But most of us don't know how to renew our mind. In fact, most of us aren't even sure we have one, or if we have one, we're not sure how to control it. Most of us believe our minds are out of control, and what we're going to learn is we're going to learn how to control your mind, how to find it, (laughs) in case you've lost your mind lately, Uh, how to find it, unpack it, get the mothballs out of it, and how to control it. Because in order to renew your mind, you have to be able to control it. And some of you have no concept that you'll ever control your mind. And we're going to learn how to control your mind. In order to renew it, you have to control it. And we're going to learn what the Bible says. God has given us tools in this word that are divinely appointed to do just that. And the process of renewing your mind is in many ways why some of you believe certain things, but they're not a reality in your life. They're in you, but they're not coming out of you yet. And then we're going to see how that is God's divine plan. It's imperative in this time we live in that the church renews its mind. Because without renewing the mind, what God's put on the inside of you can never come to the outside of you. So that's what we're going to begin to talk about. I believe we'll start on it next week if we get finished tonight. And that won't happen if I don't get teaching tonight. Praise God. So we're going to just pick up reading here in verse 19. I'm not going to go back over it. But this is one of the most wonderful chapters in the Bible because it's talking about what God has done for us. Not will do, but has done for us. The first 10 or 12 verses are all about that. And then Paul goes into a prayer for the church of the Ephesians and basically is asking God to open the eyes of their understanding to see certain things. And that's very important to understand that, that, that process, that you need to pray for that for yourself, for God to open your eyes to see things. Because in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks, says, this is the most important parable I'm going to teach you. If you can understand this parable, then you can get all the rest of them. But if you don't get this one, you won't get anything else, I say. And it's the parable of the sower, which is sowing the word of God into our hearts. And it's the process by which the word of God bears fruit in our lives. The word of God sown into your heart and watered into your heart, it will bear fruit into your life. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, uh, all the rest, all the other, the rest of the, the, all the nine fruit of the Spirit, and all other things that, that God wants to bring out of you, His character comes through the process of the Word of God getting into you and then watered and then coming out of you, and the mind controls that process. The mind controls that process. And part of that is there are certain things we're blind to. Oh, we can read over them and we can say yes, amen, and even shout in church, have it written on, in, all over our refrigerator, but it's never gotten down in here. Notice how Jesus says in a number of different places, if you believe in your heart, if you say with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him, you're saved by believing something in your heart, not your head. The principle of faith works by not doubting in your heart, but believing in your heart. Your heart, not the physical pump in you, but your spirit is the, is the, is the reservoir of the life of God in you. And there's a battle going on all around you all the time of Satan trying to distract you so that you don't see what God wants to show you. And the spirit of God has been put in us 
to reveal things. Jesus in John chapter 16 said, He's been given to you to lead you into all truth. Then over in the Gospel of John, John says, you have the anointing in you, and the anointing in you, which is the Holy Spirit, he teaches you all things. The teacher's inside of you. So God's put himself inside of you to take this word and open our eyes to see it. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, the God of this world, his, his, his main function once you're saved is to blind the eyes of the unbelieving. He wants to blind the eyes of those that aren't saved yet so they can't see something. They can't see the glorious light of the gospel that's in the face in Christ. They can't see the truth in him. But once you're saved, he doesn't stop and say, well, that's all over with. He keeps still trying to blind our eyes so that we don't know more of God. So that we come to church, we hear the messages, we sing songs of hope and praise, and go out there, nothing changes in our life. And eventually one of two things happen. We either get so discouraged we stop coming to church, and most of you know somebody that's done that. Stop. Come. By the way, encourage them to come back because they just didn't hear something they needed to hear or see something they needed to see. Or what, what is more dangerous in a way is we, we live two, in two different worlds. We live in the church world where we come in and say, yes, amen, I believe that. And we live in the real world out there where we know that's nearly not going to happen. And we learn to settle for that compromise of two different worlds. And that's where the devil loves to have you. He loves to have you being church people who don't really believe it and ha- don't have it applied in our lives. And that process of renewing the mind is helpful in that. But that's why Paul's praying. These are Christians. These are born-again, spirit-filled, Bible-toting, although they didn't have books, scroll-toting Christians. And Paul's asking God to open their eyes to see something. The hope of their calling this in Christ Jesus. The glory of the inheritance they have together with all the saints. And then what we're going to read, or started to read last time. So we're going to pick up in verse 19. Well, well, and what is the exceeding greatness? So Paul is asking God to open the eyes of the church so that they will see what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. What is the exceeding greatness? As you read through chapter 1, Notice how many superlatives there are according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. One translation says superabounded towards us. In chapter 3 he says my God will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. God is a God of superlatives. Just look at the universe. He didn't hang a few stars in the sky. The Milky Way is filled with innumerable stars and celestial bodies out there. And our solar system is just an infinitely small part of this universe, and this universe is one of the smallest of all the universes. And in the middle of all this, although it's not technically the middle, is us, the earth. And God hangs it out there for us to see and enjoy God's a God of abundance. God's a God of blessing. God's a God of super everything. We had Super Mario here a few months ago. God's super, super. He's not limited to what he can do. And the good news is, he's not holding it back. The only thing that's holding it back is our unbelief. 
the exceeding greatness of his power towards us. I don't know if they have that. Put, you can start putting them up if you have them. There we go. What is the exceeding greatness? The exce- greatness would be one, 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 one enough. But the exceeding greatness of his power towards us. So we're going to break this down a little. We're talking about God's power. When we were introducing the, the, the good news in Romans chapter 1 on Saturdays, on Sundays, not Saturdays, on Sundays, we talked a little bit about the, great, the, the power of God, is, the, the gospel is the power of God under salvation. We talked a little bit about that power. We talked one night here about it, I think. But the, we're talking about the power of God. The power of God to whom the Bible says in many places there's nothing impossible to him. And the things he does, he doesn't have to work hard at. You and I are the only thing he has to work hard on. Everything else is easy for him. It immediately does what he says. He created the universe with just let there be. That's power. The centurion recognized the power and the authority in Jesus' word. He says, you don't need to come to my house and lay hands on my servant because I recognize the authority and power you walk in. Just say the word here and my servant will be healed there. But it's not just God's power, it's the greatness of his power and the exceeding greatness of the power. And God is praying, Paul is praying, that God would open our eyes to see that. Well, what's this power for? His power towards us who believe. The New New Living Standard says, for the benefit of. So this power, we're going to see more clearly in a few minutes, is for the benefit of those who believe. Oh, there it is again. It's those who believe. It's given to everybody, but the benefit of it's received for those who believe according to the working of his mighty power, not yours. And this is part of the process of renewing our mind, is we are so ingrained in our thinking that everything depends on us. I know God's done what he's done, but then it really depends on us. No, according to the working of his mighty power. All we do is believe it. That's all we have to do. His power accomplishes that. Back a few months ago, maybe it was the end of last year, when we talked about the, 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 the um, spiritual warfare out of the sixth chapter of this book. And it starts out, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And the power of his might. It's not our power. It's his power. All right. So that's what we're going to talk about. And Paul's prayer here is that God would open the eyes of our understanding that we would see something that's already ours. It's not that God would display this power towards us. That God would open our eyes to see the power that's already been displayed and given. So God's not sitting in heaven waiting for us to get our act right, and once we get our act straight, said, all right, here it is. He's all, this is almost always the way God works. God does it first, and then he says, you've got to believe it in order to enjoy it. In fact, at some point, we'll maybe this year, go through and study the blood covenant together. One of the things you'll learn in the blood covenant is the blood covenant teaches that God's already done everything he's going to do. You notice as you go through this chapter, it's all in the past tense. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. 
He has preordained us to adoption as sons. He has forgiven us our sins. He has lavished His grace upon us. He has given us an inheritance. He has displayed His mighty power towards us. We just need to have our eyes open to see what's already ours. And all of this is simply because we're in Christ Jesus. It's not because you're somebody special or I'm somebody special. It's because we simply chose to, be, to receive Christ. And when we received Christ, we were joined into Him. And that's why Jesus' prayer to the disciples is that they may be one with Him. That they may be one with Him. And then He goes on in John 17 and prays that for the church. That we may be one with Him, joined together with Him. I've meditated on this, and you've heard me say this before. And when Jesus says in John 15, you are the branch and I am the vine. Well, stop and think about that. A branch only has value to the extent it's joined to the tree. On its own, it has no identity. I've got trees in our, we've got trees in our, front, in our front yard, and I've never named the branches. In fact, the only way I identify the branch is by what kind of tree it comes from. Listen carefully. So we have um, some maple trees, and, and the branches are maple branches because they've belonged to the maple, they're joined to the maple tree. If they fall off and die they no longer have any value. So their value is that they're connected to the tree. In the same way, when you come to Christ and I come to Christ, we have no independent identity anymore. And yet we're still trying to assert it. Your identity spiritually is now in Christ. So the devil recognizes you as in Christ. The world will, the world will not like you because you're in Christ, we're the only ones trying to assert our own independent identity. We got the, we got the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the, all these other tr- branches that we've named. But we're just branches in one tree. And even in this church, we're all branches in one tree. I don't know why I got off on that. Okay, let's go on. Okay. The power, his, according to the working of his mighty power, verse 20, which he worked. So he's talking about a power that God would open our eyes to see, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, what he's talking about, he's showing us what, what power this is that he's displayed towards us. It's the power that took Christ from Hades, the place of death, and made him alive and raised him up from the place of death and seated him next to the Father in heavenly places. That's the power he's talking about that the Father would open our eyes to see is displayed towards us. Oh, it gets better. Seated in verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age that has come. Now just think about things that have names. Cancer. Cancer has a name. It's a name that brings fear to people to the point that sometimes they don't use the C word. They don't even mention it because the word has a connotation of death and of suffering and, and, and it brings fear. But there's a name that's been given that has more power than cancer. There's a name that has more power and more authority 
than Alzheimer's or dementia. There's a name that has more authority and more power than poverty or bankruptcy or foreclosure. Anything that has a name, his name has been given authority above that name. And what we're going to see is in the kingdom of God, the order of height represents the order of authority and power. So the higher you go in name, in, a, in, in height, the greater authority you have. So he's been given a name that's above that name. Therefore, it has greater authority and greater power. And the reason it does is because the author of all of those things, cancer, Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, 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 all those bad and evil things that can happen. The author of all of those is Satan, who also has a name. And my Bible tells me in several places that he has already been defeated. He's already been defeated. First John says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that he might destroy the works of the evil one. Cancer is a work of the evil one. Any kind of sickness is a work of the evil one. Whatever you're facing that has a name is a work of the evil one to kill, steal, and destroy. And John 10.10 says, Satan, the thief, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, but I've come that you might have life, and that's super abundantly, it literally says in the Greek. So it's real easy to get a scorecard to what's going on in your life. If it kills, steals, and destroys, we know where it came from. And, and the power that, God's, that Paul's talking about here, that power is greater than the power of that disease. And we've got people in this room right now that have been cured of incurable curable diseases. Well, I thought they were incurable. Well, they're incurable until they run into a higher authority and a higher power. So how come it doesn't that more often? To him that believes... And we've been so carnal, we have more confidence in what the devil can do than what God can do through his word. But we're going to change that through renewing our mind. Okay. Verse 22. And he put all things, all things, under his feet and gave him to be head over all things, look at this, to the church. I think the New Living Translation says, for the benefit of the church. So the whole point here that Paul's prayer is, Paul's not praying, Father, please open their eyes to see the marvelous thing you did on Easter morning when you raised Christ from the dead so that they can appreciate what you did 2,000 years ago. That'd be wonderful. But he's talking about God opening the eyes of our understanding to see this great power that God did when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead, not just raised him up, seated him with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and then put all things, all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things, which is the church, which is his body. And he did this for the benefit of of the church because the head isn't here. 
The head is seated next of the body is seated next to the Father in heaven. He doesn't need that power on his behalf now. It's already been exercised on his behalf when he was raised from the dead out of hell and seated next to the Father in heaven. But that power's now been poured out here in and for and through the church so that we can do what we're here to do. And we're going to look at that in a minute. Okay. And verse 23 says, the church, which is his body, listen, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, let's go quickly. You don't need to turn there. Just go to Psalm 110, the verse I told you to put up. Psalm 110 is all about the victory of the Messiah, the Christ when he comes. Psalm 110. All right, I'll read it to you. The Lord said to my Lord, this is David writing, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This whole psalm goes on and talks about victory of the Messiah over Satan and over the powers that work under him. And it says that I am going to give you victory by raising you up, seating you at my right hand, until your enemies are made your footstool. Footstool is a sign of victory. One of the things they would do when an army in those days conquered another army is they would make... That's not the right verse, so just get it off there. They would make the enemies, the king, come and bow down. That's it. Bow down before the conquering general, and the conquering general would put his foot on the neck of the, of the defeated king as a sign of subjugation. Not just he bowed before me, but I've got him under my foot. So when the Bible talks about his enemies being made his footstool, it's talking about a complete, total, absolute, humiliating victory. And Jesus has been raised from the dead by the power of God. He's seated at the right hands and he's the head of the body. And the body, the rest of the body, has been given the assignment of completing what he began. And the completion of that is until his enemies are made his footstool. Well, he's the head. Where's the foot? It's in the body. So he's waiting until the church takes his enemy and makes it his footstool. That's what he's talking about here. Let's look at it in several other places. Let's go to... Um, well, I'm not going to go there, because I didn't give them the scriptures. Let's go over to uh, Acts chapter 2. Now, you and I are living in a time... When the church, and I'm not speaking of every church or all members of the church, but by and large, the church is intimidated. And the world is going to try to intimidate us even more. What we're going to find is that, and this is somewhat of what Lafayette shared when he was here, and I don't want to get off into this latest Supreme Court decision, I've read it, but there's provisions in there to purportedly protect the church. 
but it's worded in such a way that as long as we stay within our boundaries, we can say what we want. But don't go out there and say it. As long as you say it as worship in a service, you can say what you want. But don't go out there and say it. It's not literally what it says, but it's what it says between the lines. And it's where it's headed. And so the question is, are we going to, is the church going to be intimidated by what's going on in the world? Well, if we go in our own strength, most likely we will. But God knows what he's doing. God would not place us here at such a time as this and for a purpose that we're learning on Sunday mornings unless he also gave us the ability to do it. But we're so used to looking at the ability in ourselves. Well, I don't have any talent. I don't have any ability. I'm not very strong. Well, if you read through the book of Acts, they weren't very bold people either. Paul was bold. No, he wasn't naturally bold. Because Paul prays several times, I come to you in fear and trembling. Number of places he asks for the church in Ephesus, he asks in the end of chapter 6, please pray for me so that I will boldly say what I'm supposed to say. Well, he had Satan coming against him, buffeting him over and over again to try to stop him because if he could stop Paul, then this gospel would not have been preached throughout the world the way it was. But God knew that. At one point, Paul says, Jesus stood with me that night in the storm. So God's faithful to his church if we just don't panic and run with the rest of the world and say what the rest of the world's saying, then we begin to get our eyes on God and begin to read the Word and find out what He's given to us. He's not left us powerless. In Acts chapter 4, the very beginning, when they start preaching out in the streets, they get arrested. Peter and John get arrested because they've taken a man that was lame his whole life. And he was begging alms. And Peter says, well, we don't have any money to give you, but we have something to give you. We've been given a name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, rise up and stand up. And they stood him up, and he stood up, and he walked, and he leaped, and jumped around. And then they, you know, then they said, it wasn't by our piety. It's not because something specially holy about us, but it's this name we were given. By faith in this name, this man's been made strong. They get arrested for it. First thing they did, they get arrested for. And after they tried them and they finally realized, look, we've got a problem here because nobody can deny what happened. So if we're going to make martyrs out of them if we kill them. So they just beat them a little bit and said, just don't go preach in that name anymore. And Peter says, whether we obey you or not, that's I don't know what to do. I just know what we've seen and heard we can't keep quiet about. Later on, Peter gets arrested again gets supernaturally delivered by angels, shows up at a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. And they're praying in there for boldness. Peter comes in and says, we're threatened that if we preach in that name, they're going to kill us. So what do they do? This is what we don't do. They gather together to pray. We read newspapers, write letters, email people, blog and we get into a panic about what's going on in the world out there, the one thing we don't do is what they did. They prayed. And they came together to pray. And they prayed not to be delivered. They prayed for boldness. Now, why would they pray for boldness if they, weren't, if they were bold already? Why would they pray for boldness if they already had that confidence in boldness? They were threatened, and they were afraid 
So what, what they did is they came together and asked God to give them the empowerment that they were going to need to stand and to do what they were called to do. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. What we're going to look at right now is, and I go to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse um, 29. What's happened here, of course, is in Acts 1, Paul, Jesus tells them before he leaves, he said, wait in Jerusalem. I've trained you, I've taught you, I've sent you out, and you've, you've laid hands on the sick, they've recovered, you've cast out demons, you've, you've dealt with all this stuff, and, and, and you've seen me die on the cross, I've been raised from the dead for you, I've walked with you for about 40 days on and off. He says, and now I'm about to go into heaven, but there's something else you still need. Acts chapter 1, wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Endued with what? Power from on high. You've got all the teaching, you've got all the programs, you've got the commissioning, you've got the instruction, you've got everything else, but you're lacking the thing that you don't have in yourself. Wait, wait. Boy, that's the hardest thing when you think you're ready. That's the hardest thing when you think you're ready. Wait. They've seen all this. Wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with what? Power from on high. God's power. The God that you would open the eyes of your understanding, that they would see the power, exceeding greatness of the power that you displayed towards them when you raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And now what happens is they wait. And Acts chapter 2 begins by saying, and on the day of Pentecost, when it had fully come, they were gathered together again in one accord, praying in the upper room. And the place where they were praying was filled. Not they, the place was filled. And they were filled, of course, with the Holy Spirit. And there appeared over them like tongues of fire. And I believe, I've mentioned this before, I can't believe it was like a little big lighter on the top of their head. I believe that they were engulfed in the glory of God. And there's no other way to describe it. It was like a tongue of fire. Because the glory of God, when Moses saw that burning bush, it wasn't on fire. It didn't burn up. It was the glory of God shining. And all he could do is, the only words he could find, it was on fire, but it didn't burn up. They were on fire, and they didn't burn up. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And and whatever happened in that room was so powerful, they couldn't contain it in the room, and it spilled out into the streets. Peter didn't stand up and say, look, you know, we ought to do something about this. You know, we ought to spread this out. Let's go talk about this. Now, you guys go over there and knock on those doors. You guys died. No, they couldn't contain it. They couldn't keep it in the room. It spilled out onto the streets. And people were gathered around. So it must have made some kind of noise. Gathered around. And they must have seemed drunk. Because when Peter starts this sermon, he starts off by saying, we're not drunk as you suppose. So they were drunk. But not on what they supposed they were drunk on. Different spirit. And he goes down to be able to begin to explain to them what this is. That's happened. And he goes back and quotes the apostle, the apostle, the prophet Joel, when Joel says, In the latter days, God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. 
not just the preacher. All flesh. And miracles are going to take place. Old men are going to dream. Young men are going to have visions. All kinds of supernatural things are going to take place. That's what was happening then. That's what began to happen then. And it was never God's intention that it stopped happening because nowhere in the Bible does it say it was supposed to stop. In the middle of this message, when he's talking about what this, what, what's happened here, and that this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel, we're going to pick up here Acts 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, he's talking about that Christ was raised from the dead. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, someone who was going to come as a descendant of his, from his body, according to the flesh, would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul would not be left in Hades or hell, nor his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, what we saw in Ephesians, the prayer, that God would open our eyes to see that he was raised from the dead. Having received the promise... Excuse me, verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out... This which you now see and hear. In order to explain what he sent for, he's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In order to understand this, he goes back to what David quoted back in Psalm 110, which we just saw. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he said himself, The Lord has said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now stop there a second. What he's saying is this. They've now seen this outpouring of the Spirit. And Peter, in explaining what this is, that this is the next step. He says, the man you crucified on that cross was the Christ, the Messiah, that the prophets had prophesied about, that David said was going to be the Christ, the anointed one, that was going to come as a descendant of his body. And when David said that, David said this one is going to come in order to make God's enemies his footstool. And we just saw that Paul prayed in Ephesians that God would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the exceeding greatness of the power He displayed towards us when He raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That we can understand. The power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, but what Paul's asking God is to open our eyes to see that that power was displayed for the benefit of the church. Because He's seated at the right hand, but He's seated there until His enemies are made His footstool. And Peter's saying, now that he's seated, this power has been poured out on the church to enable us to accomplish the next phase, which is for the body to make his enemies his footstool. Can you see that? It's a little couple steps together. But the power that's been given to the church is for the purpose of defeating the works of Satan 
in the world the bondage of sin, the bondage of sickness, the bondage of demonic oppression, all these things that hold people's lives down that Jesus set people free from when he walked around on the earth. He's commissioned his church, the rest of his body from the head on down to continue to carry out that purpose so that the kingdom of God can come to the world and they can experience and choose it. But the church is out there trying to do the same thing he did without the power by which he did it. And the power's in us. But we're trying to do it with programs. And lights and fancy things. And I'm glad we have them. But that's not the power. It's not in the lights. Because all they got to do is throw a switch somewhere in Providence and we aren't seeing anything. But they can't turn this power off and on. So here on the day of Pentecost, Peter is tying these things together. That the, that the power of the Holy Spirit, what you see now, notice they saw something. It wasn't people sitting nice in church singing hymns. People out there, something exploded out of that room. They didn't even understand what they were doing. And it worked. Because at the end of that day, was it 3,000 were saved or 5,000 were saved? The next day, it was the other. I mean, the results were people got saved. In fact, look at the results. Look at the next verse. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? When men start saying, what do I have to do? You know the Spirit of God touched them. When they left saying, that was a good message, "Mm, I don't know. But when it moves people to repent, when it moves people to fall on their face, when it moves people to examine their lives and open up their lives and allow God to touch their lives, that's when the power of God's moving. Goosebumps aren't the power of God. Changes, deliverances, lives different, Satan's bondage broken out of people's lives. That's what the power has been given to the church to do. And the Holy Spirit is the container of that power. And he's been poured out. If you're filled with the Spirit, you've got that power in you. Then how come it hasn't been flowing? Well, there's a number of reasons. One of us we didn't know was there. Oh, we know it was there, but we thought it was there so we could feel good about ourselves in church. That's like, you know... Well, I don't want to go there. It's not a good example. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And this is the verse that's been rolling around in me. That's often how God works in me. Either a word rolls around in me or a verse. Just I can't get away from it. It just rolls around in me. And then I begin to look at it and meditate on it. It's God trying to get my attention for us, for the church. Now, Paul has just talked in the first chapter about comparing the wisdom of the world with God's wisdom. And it was no comparison. Because he's writing this to a church of believers in a place called Corinth, Greece, which is in the southern part of, what was in the southern part of Greece. And, and especially the southern part of Greece, that, that was, it was the birth of philosophy. 
the major philosophies of the world, the ones that still affect most of the world, most of them, are, came out of there. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, other great, great mathematicians, some of the great uh, 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 works of art came out of there. Great minds, and they, 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 they worshipped the mind and the intelligence and the wisdom that they had. And, and so Paul's writing to them to kind of compare their wisdom with God's wisdom. And basically says that, that God's not relying, because their wisdom was keeping them out of the kingdom of God. And Paul's basically saying, the brightest man you've got, the wisest man they've got, and compared to God, is utter foolishness. And therefore, God's chosen things that the world considers foolish in order to accomplish his will. First, the preaching of the word. It's about as foolish as you can get. It doesn't intellectually make sense, but it's the, with the method God has ordained for feeding people and, 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 and reaching souls and getting them saved. It's simply telling the word. That's why you're not called to go defend God. You're not even called to explain him. We're just called to tell just tell the word. Just tell the gospel. Just tell what the word of God says. Just tell what God's done in your life and let the spirit of God work in their life. So Paul says, God's chosen what the world thinks is foolish to confound what the world thinks is wise. God's chosen things that the world says are nothing and weak to confound those things that the world says are strong. The, the, very, the, the very wisdom, highest wisdom of God is foolishness to God. Foolishness to God. Having said that, in chapter 2 he's going to say, but there is a wisdom that does come from God. But in order to do that, let's look at the first few verses. I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, nor with wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. So Paul's saying, when I came to you, I didn't trust in my ability to explain things. I didn't trust in the wisdom that I had about God. But I trusted in something else. Verse 2. For I determined to know nothing, determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And boy, is that good advice for today. There is so many side issues out there. So many things on the internet. Just be, don't just be careful. I don't look at that stuff. I don't want to offend anybody, but people send me emails about this article. I don't read them. I've just learned in 30-some years of walking with God, there are very few things that I really read. And the most fundamental thing I read is this. And then there's some books that I believe God's given to me. But even those, I'm careful when I read those because this is the only one that's the authority. There's so many ideas out there that are side issues. What about this and what about that and what about this and what about that? Paul says... I come to you with all the knowledge he had. I mean, this man learned this gospel, not in a classroom, not reading books, but by Jesus personally appearing to him and revealing it to him. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, I was taken up into third heaven and saw things that are utterly indescribable. But he didn't come with those things. He didn't come telling them the visions he saw and the wonderful experiences he had. He didn't get off on angels and all that other stuff. Not that those angels aren't real. We may even look at them tonight. Well, maybe not tonight. He says, I came to you with one simple thing. The cross and Jesus Christ crucified. 
He goes on in 2 Corinthians and says, I'm concerned for you lest you've been beguiled away from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. Pastor Sam used to put it a little plainer way. Have you gotten so bored with Jesus that you chase after other things? If if we're chasing after other things, then our relationship with Jesus has gotten boring. And if our relationship with him is boring, there's something we're blind to because he's the most exciting being that's ever lived. So Paul says... I've come to you with all the wisdom I have and all the knowledge. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and preaching were not in persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration. A demonstration is something you can see. I don't know that they still do this, but they used to have vacuum cleaner salesmen. And they would knock on your door and ask for the privilege of showing you their, demonstrating their vacuum cleaner. And they would come into your nice clean living room and they would bring some of their dirt and pour it all over the carpet. And they would demonstrate you how good this carpet this vacuum cleaner, they would take your vacuum cleaner and then they'd take their vacuum cleaner and show you that after they, you use yours, they're still got some up. They were, listen, they were showing you what their vacuum cleaner that they were selling would do. They were demonstrating it some, to you. Something that you could see with your senses so that you could understand why that was what they said it was. Paul said, I come to you not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit. And my question to me tonight, and to us tonight, where's the demonstration of the Spirit? And of power. Where's the, where's the church demonstrating the Spirit? And where's the church demonstrating the power? One of the biggest concerns of pastors that I talk to, especially even of, of the older generation, how are we going to reach the youth? Because the youth of today is different than the youth in my day or most of your day. Because the youth of today has been raised with a with a with a with a, a worldview that's completely different. It's devoid of God, devoid of the basic value systems. Most children raised in church today don't even really aren't even sure the Bible's true. Let alone know where to find things in it. I won't ask you if you know where to find things, but most kids don't know where to find things in the Bible. How are we going to teach them? How are we going to get their attention? I mean, this isn't going to do it. It's not going to do it. I want to, I want to have a more modern look, but that's not what I'm relying on. That's not going to do it. And I've been in churches where they got smoke and lasers and things like that. That's not going to do it. How are we going to reach them? 
new programs. They've heard most of it, and most of them don't really believe it. But you get the Holy Spirit beginning to demonstrate himself. You begin to have him demonstrate the power of God. I'm telling you, there's no laser show that can match the power of God when he shows off. There's no light show. There's no rock concert. There's no all those things. They use all that stuff, and, and, and that's fine, but there's nothing that can compare what God can do when God decides to show off. So the question is, where is it? He's poured it out. God's not sitting in heaven waiting, saying, you know, you know I don't know. I'm not ready yet. God's poured out his spirit. He's here. He's in us. He's in this place. I've got some answers, but I'm not going to give them to you tonight because I, I, I just want to ask the question. See, Paul, and this is where we started tonight, Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. I guess they were struggling too. Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus said, God, open the eyes of their understanding that they would see the hope of your calling, the glory of their inheritance, and the exceeding greatness They'd see the exceeding greatness, the power that you displayed towards them when you raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That you've now given for the benefit of the church so that his enemies are made his footstool. But most Christians, and I'm speaking generally to all of us, are still so wrapped up in some kind of bondage of fear, intimidation, that we hide, we watch you know, Fox News and get scared. I was meeting with a Christian today, and he's talking about, you know, he said, I just couldn't watch the news after the court's decision on Friday because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to end up afraid. You listen to all the, what's going to happen, and, you know, I, you, you can't, I couldn't, I didn't watch any of that. I knew the facts of what happened, and that's all I need to know because it gets intimidating. Right. Jesus wasn't intimidated. Nothing intimidated him because he walked, in perfect obedience to the Father and to His will. Filled with the Spirit of God. By and large, the things the church is doing now aren't going to do it. God has to do something. God has to do something. And He wants to in the demonstration and power. Back then, Paul says, I have to be careful. I can't come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom. I can't come to you counting on things that other people count on. But i got to, first of all, only have my focus on the cross and not compromise the cross. We cannot compromise the cross. We cannot compromise the cross because everything goes through the cross. And I did not trust in the wisdom that I had and my eloquence, and he had it. But I came to you relying only on and seeking only after the demonstration of the Spirit and of his power. We've got to pray for that. We've got to pray for God to open our eyes to see it. Not for him to pour it out, for us to open our eyes to see it. And in the process, if there are blocks 
if there are things we're doing or not doing that we should change. He'll show us that if we're asking him. But he will not do something we don't ask him to do. But this is his pleading with us. Please come and ask. Let's pray. Father, you have chosen to bring our lives into this earth to save us and to bring us together at this place, at this particular time of man's history, when things seem to be shifting all around us, shifting from good to evil, and Satan seems to be getting the upper hand in so many areas, and things that that must be horrendous to you are becoming commonplace, and yet you placed us here together at such a time as this. And Father, in the past, we've relied so much on our own understanding, our own ways, our own programs, our own plans, and they don't work enough today. We need the power of your Spirit and the demonstration of your Spirit. You told your disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power on high, baptized, immersed and saturated with the spirit of grace and the spirit of power, the Holy Spirit. Your church needs that today as much as they needed it then. So, Father, we pray tonight, as the Apostle Paul prayed, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the exceeding greatness of the power that you displayed towards us, for us, when you raised Christ Jesus from the dead and raised him up and seated him in heavenly places, far above principalities and powers and every name that's named. Seated him at your right hand until his enemies are made his footstool, and you did that for the benefit and the well-being of your church, his body, on the earth today, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Open our eyes to see the need, and open our eyes to see your wonderful, gracious provision. In Jesus' name, amen.